what is it in your life that brings you joy? What things in your life do you, do you have or do you experience or do you do that, that really bring you joy? I know for me, one of the things that brings me joy is uh, being outdoors, hunting and fishing. Man, I just, I love it. I love being outdoors, and there is nothing more fun to me than going out with a group of friends and shooting birds out of the sky, and, but that's not the best part. The best part is coming home, throwing it on the grill, and then enjoying it with my friends and family, especially when the, when the kids, they're little, they're like, Daddy, did you shoot this? I'm like, yeah, I shot that, and they're eating it, and they're like, Daddy, this is so good. That just brings me such great joy to see how happy that makes them. And, and that, that I could bring that home and do that uh, for them. You know, have something that I, like, literally almost myself provided. Like, God made the birds fly in range, so he technically provided. But, you know, I get to provide real meal for my family. Um, this past week, many of you know, I work a lot of times out of Chianfrani Coffee Shop. And, and uh, when I go there, I bring signs with me, just discussion starters, questions, anything that I can do to, um, you know, be able to work, but at the same time, you know, have, have some interaction with people. Like, I don't want to just be focused on my work, but, uh, you know, I, I go there for the purpose of meeting people and interacting with people. And so I put this sign up, what brings you joy? What brings you joy? And it was great to see a number of people from all walks of life come over. They'd read the sign, and you could see them kind of smile, and you could tell something was going on in their head, like something popped in that, that even just the thought of it brought them joy. And a couple of responses, one lady said, you know, I just love being outdoors. I just love being in nature, and, and I could relate to that. And so we talked about being in nature and the kind of joy that it brings. Uh, one lady said, man, I love sleep, and I can relate to that. Yesterday afternoon, Man, I did not get off the couch for like three hours. I just laid there, didn't do a single thing, took a nap, sort of, uh, and woke up and fell back asleep, and it was, it was great. I enjoyed it. I had a good time. What is it in your life that brings you joy? I mean, do you have something that, that you would say brings you real joy? I mean, like I said, I love hunting and, and fishing and being outdoors, and I got to tell you, that last day of August when I go to bed, before September 1st, it's like a kid before Christmas. I mean, I'm just excited about like opening day of dove season the next day and, and I can hardly sleep. Or if I know that I'm going to get to go hunting the next day, it's like if I, if I were any more excited, there would be a puddle underneath me. Uh, I just, I love it. I get so much joy out of that. Uh, my, my kids love camping. We took them on their first camping trip when they were about two and a half years old. And about 30 minutes after we got out of the car, uh, our daughter, Charlie, did not speak an entire word the rest of the weekend. She sang everything that came out. Every question, every statement, everything was a song at the top of her lungs. I'm sure the people next to us were like, would someone please quiet that kid down? Like, we're trying to enjoy nature here, and this little girl is like singing at the top of her lungs. If you've ever seen Elf, it was a lot like that. Uh, she was just so happy, so much joy coming out of them. Uh, yesterday, it was pouring down rain, and we're just playing outside. There's no thunder or lightning. We're just playing outside, playing in the rain. I watched my kids just enjoy themselves so much that, that you could see it on their faces. There was something about just playing in the rain, doing something different, that the joy could not be contained within them. They had to dance, they had to laugh, and they had to sing at the top of their lungs because they had so much joy. When's the last time you felt that kind of joy? Has it been a while? 
You know that God wants you to experience that kind of joy and that you can experience that kind of joy on a regular basis. Now, I'm not talking about happiness because there's a big difference between being happy and having joy, right? I mean, you get a new car, it makes you happy, but guess what? Three years, five years, ten years, if you're like me, 14 years later, uh, that car is now needing repairs. It's needing oil changes. It's leaking something or something's out of alignment and it needs to be fixed and it no longer brings you the happiness that it once did. Maybe you think a new house, that'll make me happy. Well, you know what? You get a new house and uh, pretty soon you've got um, things that need to repair, be, be repaired. The faucet's leaking, the toilet's running, uh, the foundation's cracked, your cabinets need to be resurfaced, whatever it is. You know, you have things that bring you happiness, but they don't really bring you joy. You see, happiness, oftentimes, it just depends on the external factors, like something external, like I get something new or somebody does something for me and I'm happy, but joy is something that is internal that cannot be taken away from you. It can't be taken away from you. One of the things that brings me the greatest joy in my entire life is my kids. Uh, There is nothing that could ever take that kind of joy away from me. I love our triplets. They're three years old. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is to tickle them to the point, like all three of them tickle them at the same time to the point where there's no more laughter coming out. It's just like inhaling. I mean, that is the best thing in my entire life that I can ever do. And I, I come home, sometimes you have a long day, you've been gone since six o'clock in the morning and it's seven o'clock at night, you come home and you just, you, I'm playing with my kids and it's like there's nothing that could take this away from me. Yes, something could happen and my kids you know, could die or whatever, but nothing could take that moment away from me. And I, I can remember those moments, and it just puts a smile on my face to think about those. That's joy. And God desires for each and every one of us to experience that kind of joy. And over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to be studying the book of Philippians, and we're going to be going on a little bit of a joy ride. Right, summertime's coming up, and I and, uh, thought it would be fun if we, we had a little bit of a vacation, road trip type theme. So we're going to be going on a joyride through the book of Philippians. And we're going to be seeing what the Apostle Paul says about what it's like to live the Christian life, the life of a believer, someone who's put their trust in Jesus Christ in the joy that they can experience. A little bit of background of that book. If you want to go, go ahead and open your Bibles. We'll be in Philippians chapter 1. But just a little bit of background to this book is it was written by the Apostle Paul while he's in prison. Now, uh, if you want to know a little bit more about the founding of the church in Philippi, you can go to Acts chapter 16 and read about it there where Paul goes and he, he meets with a woman named Lydia. And he, he sees her come to faith in Jesus Christ and then her household and then a slave girl and then a, a, a Roman soldier, a prison guard, comes to faith. You can read all about that there. Um, but Paul has to leave pretty quickly because people are pretty upset with, um, with some of the stuff that he's doing there because more and more people are coming to faith and they're losing money because of it. There's no more sacrifices. There's no more, uh, not as many people are coming to this one girl who was... Um, she was able to, to tell of the future by a demon. And Paul cast that demon out of her. She comes to faith. And they're like, hey, you just took away our livelihood. We were making money off this girl. We want you gone. So they get rid of him. They run him out of town. So he's not there for very long. And, and Paul is in prison, and he's writing this letter. He's writing this letter to the people of Philippi. And, I mean, the guy's in prison. He's been shipwrecked. Throughout his journeys, he's been... Two times he's been beaten with 39 lashes, which 40 was considered a death penalty. Twice. 
multiple times. He's been beaten by crowds. There was one time they drug him out of the city. They stoned him. They thought he was dead. They left him there, and he gets back up and walks back into the city. I mean, this guy has not had it easy. In fact, this time when he was arrested, he was arrested illegally. It wasn't a lawful arrest. And now he's been in prison, and now he's had uh, trials, and he's on his way to Rome. He's in Rome awaiting trial before Caesar. Yet, when he writes this letter, overwhelmingly, the theme that stands out is this idea of joy. Sixteen times in four short chapters, the idea of joy, rejoice, be glad, comes up over and over and over and over again. How is it that in the midst of such horrible, un, uh, unwelcome circumstances, could someone have such joy? Well, if you open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1, we'll see over the next few weeks that um, God does something in us that allows us to go on this joy ride. Let's begin in, in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul is, has already introduced himself in the letter with Timothy, who was with him when he founded the church, and he's, he says he's writing to all the saints, that's all the believers in Christ Jesus that are in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace be you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, I thank God every time I remember you in my prayers. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with what? With joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We see Paul's joy immediately comes through because of faith in Jesus Christ. Like, it starts there. Paul has a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you, if you see one thing throughout this chapter and throughout this book, it's that the ride of your life, experiencing that kind of joy, begins by being single-minded. Paul has one thing on his mind at all times. That's the gospel. And it's Jesus Christ. And the only, the only way you get to that point is first by beginning a relationship with Jesus Christ. It has to start there. Because Paul, when he came to the city of Philippi, the, the message that he preached, the reason that he says that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He's talking about their faith. That God is going to continue to build and draw them closer and closer into fellowship with himself as their faith grows. But it all started that moment that they recognized, number one, man, I've done some things that God calls sin, and because of that, I'm separated from him. And Paul comes with this message of how they can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, who on the cross died for our sins and rose from the dead. And Paul comes and he preaches that message and he says, all you have to do is trust that Jesus' death on the cross, that when he died, he died for your sins. And put your trust in that. And you'll be saved. And you'll know that no matter what happens, you'll spend eternity in heaven with God, that you are now secure. Romans 8 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, think about that. Paul's in prison. He's possibly facing death. And I'm sure those words that he's written elsewhere, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus keep coming to his mind that no matter what happens, man, I'm going to heaven. Like, all this other stuff is not good, but there's something more coming. 
And all of that stems from his faith in Jesus Christ, his trust in Jesus Christ. And his single-mindedness comes through. Five, uh, I've mentioned, you know, 16 times in four chapters, Paul uses this idea of joy, rejoicing, and be glad. Five times in this one chapter, he references the gospel. I'd say that's pretty important. 17 times in this one chapter, chapter one, he references Christ. Christ and the gospel are the thing that we as believers are to be single-minded about. It's the thing that's going to bring us the greatest joy in our lives. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, man, being single-minded, only thinking about the gospel does not sound like fun to me. That does not sound like joy. Like, even being here this morning, setting my alarm to come to, to church, that just does not sound like joy to me. But really, if that's your impression, then, then you know, first I'd say maybe you, you've forgotten your own need for the gospel, Like, do you remember that moment that you came to faith in Jesus Christ and you realized, my sins are forgiven, and no matter what happens, I will spend eternity in heaven? Like, if that doesn't put a smile on your face and bring you a little bit of joy, then I don't know what will. Like, just think back to that. And second, I would say, I think you've you've misunderstood what it means to be single-minded about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we just sit and have Bible study and pray and write in our prayer journals all the time. That's not what it means. Uh, in fact, there's a great example of this by a man uh, named Eric Little. Many of you may know that name. Some of you know it. Um, the movie Chariots of Fire was based on some events in his life. And Eric Little, Little was a, a, Scottish, a Scotsman who was born in China. His parents were missionaries there. And uh, he comes back to Scotland for his high school, college level education and while he's there, he gets real interested in sports, and it turns out that he's really good because he's really fast. And so he devotes himself to running and, and training, and uh, he actually runs in the 1924 Olympics. Now, when he ran in the Olympics, he was supposed to run the 100-meter dash, which is a sprint, but that race was scheduled for Sunday. So he decided he wasn't going to run because he was using Sunday as a Sabbath. He didn't believe that he should run on a Sunday. And so he ends up running the 400 meters, which is a mid-distance race, which is completely different than an all-out sprint. You've got to know how fast to start and when to have your kick so that, you know, you don't burn out before everyone else or that you don't go too slow that by the time you, you step it up and you're ready to go all out, everyone's so far ahead of you that you can't do it. He, this is a race he hadn't trained for. But he wins the gold medal and he brings it home. And there's a point in his training where his sister Jenny, who's there in Scotland with him, comes to him and says, look, you need to go back in the mission field. You need to go back. Don't forget what we came here for. Don't forget. Remember to be single-minded. And here's what Eric Little says to that. I've decided. I'm going back to China. The missionary service have accepted me. Oh, Oh, I'm so pleased. I've got a lot of running to do first. Jenny. Jenny, you've got to understand. I believe that God made me for a purpose. For China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. You were right. It's not just fun. To win... 
is to honor him. God made me for a purpose. But when I run, I feel his pleasure. Like running was something that brought Eric little joy because he knew that through his running, it not only gave him a platform for the gospel, but he could feel God's pleasure. But he never forgot that God made him for a purpose. In fact, after he won the Olympic, uh, gold medal in the 400, he ended up going back to China in 1925 until he died in 1945 after the Japanese invaded China and he was put into a prison camp. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. God made me for a purpose, but there are other things that God has given me to do. Eric Little understood that God had given things for him to do that he could enjoy, that he could find joy in doing those things. And part of the joy in doing those things was bringing God glory. Like, it brings God glory for me to win. What is it in your life that you would say, when I do this, I feel God's pleasure? I'll give you a hint. It can't be sin. Like, we can, we can enjoy sin, right? We've all been there. We've been doing sin, and you know it's sin, and you're like, man, but this is so good. I'm going to do it anyways. That, you can't do that. You can feel God's pleasure. What is it in your life that you do that you feel God's pleasure? That you can feel that joy. What is it? Because God desires for you to to find that thing, to experience his joy, and then do that for his pleasure. So, you know, uh, as our kids get older, I hope they play sports. But I understand that them being on a sports team is not the end game. The end game, my single-mindedness says, God, why have you put us on this team with these families? Like, what is it that you want us to accomplish? I hope our kids are good. Um, If I end up coaching and they're not good, man, they're going to have a really hard time riding the pine because daddy likes to win. Uh, But God, why have you put us on this team? God, why are our kids in this class? God, why do you have us in this neighborhood with these neighbors? Like, I love cooking out. I love inviting our neighbors over to cook out because I just, there's something about meat over fire that brings out the man in me and I love it and I love sharing it with other people. So God, why is it that, that this brings me such joy? Like, what do you want me to do with this? What is there in your life that God has given you that you say, man, this brings me joy and you know what? I want to honor God through that. That's what it means to be single-minded, that you find the things that you're already doing that, that you can use to honor God. That's the single-mindedness that, that we should have. Single-mindedness, as we see, Paul says in verse 4, he says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is saying, look, not only do each and every one of you have, have Jesus Christ in the gospel as the single thing in your mind that you're focused on, but as a group, that is your single focus. And let me just say this. It's not enough for, for Charlie uh, to be focused on reaching his friends and neighbors. It's not enough for just the elders and the staff to be focused on reaching their friends and neighbors as a church. We've got to be single-minded. We've got to remember that there is something very important that God has called us to do. Um, Jared was up here earlier making the announcements about community group, and that is the perfect way to experience single-mindedness. Because what we're going to see later in this, in this book is that, that these people care for one another. They love one another. And they're working together to advance the gospel. 
That's what it's all about. That single-minded focus of, God, what are you going to do with this for your glory? What are you going to do with this to draw people closer to yourself? The ride of your life begins by being single-minded, not just as an individual and as a group. And that should encourage us because it reminds us that you're not alone on this journey. You have companions for the journey, right? How many of you uh, like going on long car rides by yourself? Anybody? Like really long car rides by yourself? A couple of you, not me. Like I would rather have a group of people in the car with me, mainly because I'm not very good at driving long distances and I fall asleep. Um, So that's not a good thing. A lot of times we get like through Austin or through Dallas or through Houston, I'm like, honey, you got to drive. Like two hours is my limit. I'm done. Uh, you're going to have to drive. She's like, I'm pregnant. And I'm like, yeah, but I, I need to sleep. <laughs> like, I just want to fall asleep in the car. But if I'm, you know, if I'm with my family, my friends, you know, we're playing games, we're singing, we're having a good time, you're playing road games, you're looking at all these, these signs and having, having fun. But there's something about having companions for the journey that's encouraging. Let's look at what Paul says in verse 5. He says, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. From the very beginning, these people placed their faith in Jesus Christ and immediately went out. Lydia immediately goes out and she begins sharing the gospel with her family, with her whole household. This Philippian jailer goes and immediately shares the gospel with his whole household. And I'm sure they went out and shared with more people. There was a partnership there. They weren't alone in the journey. In verse 7 and 8, he says this. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. All of you share in God's grace with me. I'm not alone. You guys share in this stuff. The Philippians had been supporting Paul. They were one of the most supportive churches that Paul had as far as his missionary journeys. We're going to see in chapter 2 that they actually sent a man to go and bring Paul a gift and to encourage Paul that, hey, keep fighting the good fight. Man, we all wish we could go on this missionary journey with you, but we can't. So we just want to be with you and encourage you. Paul says you get, to, and you get to experience God's grace through that because of that. And then in verse 9, he says this. And my prayer is this, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Paul says, he says that my prayer is that your love may abound more and more. That word abound there, the the word that he uses is like the image of a cup that's overflowing or a river that's overflowing its banks. And he says, I just want you to abound. Like that cup is overflowing and someone's still pouring in you to the point that it continues to overflow. There's this continual overflowing in your life that I want you to experience. He goes on and he says, he says, that you may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. That word knowledge there, there's two words that are commonly used in the Greek for knowledge. One is gnosis, one is epignosis. And this word here, gnosis, is kind of like, I know that. I read it in a book. I know that two plus two is four, right? I can read that in a book and know that. Epignosis, which is the word that's used here, means that you've experienced that, that you've taken two cookies and gotten two more cookies, and now you know that you have four cookies. Like you've experienced it. You know it for a fact. And Paul says, I want you to experience this love. I want you to experience God. I want you to experience this kind of joy and depth of insight. 
It's that insight when Paul's not talking about, you know, that you can quote a lot of scripture and, and you know what it means, but insight into the heart and mind of God. Like, God, what would you have me do? That's Paul's prayer for them. That they would have that kind of knowledge and depth of insight, experiential knowledge, that they would be able to know God's ways and his love, and they would be able to love others more. That they would be able to love God more, and they'd be able to love others more. And the purpose for that is so that they can be pure and blameless. Pure and blameless. That word for pure is the word that, that they used. Uh, sincere is a better word to translate it. Sincere. And that word was used by, by people uh, that would be in the marketplace and they'd be selling something and they'd ask, is this real? And they'd say, it's sincere. Like you can take it in the sunlight and look at it. Um, recently went with my wife to purchase some makeup. She needed some new makeup, and I don't know anything about makeup, but apparently the color that you buy matters for, what was it, foundation? Foundation. Like, it's got to match the color of your skin, or it's going to look wrong, and so she's asking my opinion, and the only thing I knew to do was like, okay, we're in a store with fluorescent lights. Go to the sunlight so I can see what it really looks like. Like, that's the only thing I knew to do. Like, when you paint a room, you don't just turn the lights on at night and paint the room. You wait for the sunlight to see, do I like this color or not? Right? You've got to test it in the sunlight, and that's the idea. Paul's saying, I want you to be tested as in the daylight, that you would be blameless. He's talking about this in community, and he says, look, uh, what you need to understand is, is I want you to ask this, your, yourself this kind of question. Are my, motives gonna, my motives are going to be tested by God when Jesus Christ returns. So I need to be asking myself these questions when, when I'm talking about enjoying myself and having joy. Number one, is what I'm doing going to cause someone else to stumble? And number two, if Jesus were to come back right now and catch me doing this, would I be ashamed? Like what, if the answer is, is no to both of those, then go for it and do it with joy. And honor God and bring others along with you for the ride. Paul says three things in, in this short little section. He, he says, I've got you in my mind. I remember you. He says, I have you in my heart. And then he says, I have you in my prayers. Do you have your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ in your heart, mind, and prayers? Do you have your friends and neighbors who need to know Jesus in your heart, mind, and prayers? When you begin praying for people, when you begin thinking about them, when you begin to love other people with the love of God, you're going to experience that kind of joy. You're going to experience joy. But it's not always going to be perfect. There are going to be things that come up that can be discouraging. To use a road trip term, it might be a detour. But don't be discouraged by the detours. Don't be discouraged by the detours. When I was in sixth grade, uh, it was the last family vacation that I ever went on uh, with my family. My sister was graduating high school. This was our last chance to go on a family vacation. And um, we've affectionately labeled it the vacation from hell. It was the absolute worst vacation. Like, Clark Griswold has nothing on this family vacation. It was awful. Like, before we even left town... Just so you know, we were, we were going to go to Colorado. My parents had borrowed someone's pop-up trailer, and we were going to pull it behind this 1994 Taurus. 
um, which was not designed to pull a pop-up trailer with all of our stuff in it. So we were like low-riding, you know, dragging. Anytime we'd come out of a parking lot, you could hear, you know, scrape on the bottom. We took it to Sears before we even left town. We're like, we need new shocks or struts or whatever. And they're like, we can't do anything. So we decided to go anyways. Uh, long story short, there were multiple flat tires. Um, going up Old Monarch Pass, we had to ride with the, the heater on. And this is in summertime in the middle of a heat wave when it was over 100 degrees. And uh, lucky for us, our windows uh, were electronic and they broke, so they wouldn't roll down. So we're in this hot car, windows up, heater on, going up Old Monarch Pass because the radiator's blown. We get to the top of Old Monarch Pass. We've got to unhook the trailer. My dad leaves my mom, brother, and I there. And he coasts back down the mountain to a shop to get it repaired. Uh, this is all on the way to vacation. Once we get to the spot that we're supposed to camp for a couple days, the pop-up trailer doesn't pop up. All of our stuff stuck inside. We have no way to get it out. No one can get it fixed. We have, we have no place to sleep. We have no tent with us. We were planning on sleeping in the trailer. Like this is, everything gets worse and worse. My sister ends up losing a, uh, expensive ring that one of her boyfriends had given her that he had since moved away and they were still trying to make this long distance thing work. I don't know when you're in high school, love is weird, but it was a big deal that we couldn't find this ring. My parents finally said, look, we're going to, this two-week trip ended up only being five days. Uh, it was supposed to be 14 days. It was bad enough that we're just like, we're turning around, we're going home, we're calling it quits. It was, it was an awful trip. And the one thing that I remember is that my brother and I just begged mom and dad, we're like, it is so hot and we're tired of riding in this hot car, we just, like, get us a place with a pool. When we stop at a hotel, just make sure it has a pool. Well, the first place they stopped, the pool was being renovated. The second place they stopped didn't have a pool, and those were the only two hotels in that town. So the lady at the front desk said, you know what, we've got the honeymoon suite that has a heart-shaped jacuzzi in it. My brother and I got in that room, man. We ripped our clothes off, put our swimsuits on, and we were sitting in that heart-shaped jacuzzi with cold water flowing all over us. And my sister's like, great, you know, the, one, the first time I spend in the, in the honeymoon suite, I'm with my family. You know, it was just like this awful trip. We got home and, and we told our dog, we told the dog, we're like, man, our mom and dad love you because they didn't make you go on this vacation. And anytime we'd start fighting, my parents would be like, hey, don't make us take you on vacation. It was awful, but if we look back on that and we think about all the detours, all the bad stuff that came up on that trip, running out of gas multiple times, running on fumes to get to a gas station, and our family laughs about it. We think on those times with joy. They weren't fun when we were going through it, but God used those detours in our lives. And then you think about the Apostle Paul. He's He's been beaten, almost killed multiple times. He's in prison. Not only is he in prison, but while he's in prison, there are people out there trying to stir up trouble for him so that he'll be in more trouble if he ever does get out of prison. But they're kind of hoping that he, you know, this is the end for him. And he still writes this letter with all this joy because Paul sees that there is something bigger taking place here. Paul understands that there's something more going on. Verse 12, he says this, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Like that's his thought. All these horrible, awful things that happened to me happened to advance the gospel, and since that's the case, I'm good. Like I'm happy. The gospel is going forward. He goes on and he says, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. 
Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Because I'm in jail, because of all these bad things that are happening to me, because of all these detours, the gospel is going out. That brings me joy. He says, it's true, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The, ad, the latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not s- sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, what does it say there? Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Do you have that kind of joy in your life? That you can look and say, man, no matter what happens, I know God is using this. I know God is using this. And the thing is, Paul is probably not sitting there excited, happy, you know, going along, everything in his jail cell, because it's not a very fun time, but he has a peace. He has a joy that nobody can take away from him. In fact, He's telling all these jailers about Jesus while he's chained to them. And some of them are coming to faith. Do you have that kind of joy? Do you know that God wants you to experience that kind of joy? Look at verse 20. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body. Whether by life or by death, for me... To live is Christ and to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, look, this detour, it may be like a dead end, literally. But if that's the case, I know that good is going to come of it, that God's going to use it for the gospel. And he doesn't mean, he goes on to say, you know, it's better for me to go and be with Jesus. And he's not, he doesn't have a death wish, but what he's saying is, is like, Look, I know it's going to be better when I get to, with Jesus, but that's also going to embolden people. If I'm martyred, they're going to be emboldened to go preach the gospel even more. But if I stay, he says it's going to mean fruitful labor for me uh, in your lives. He says, I'm torn between the two in verse 23. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress in what? Joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, your what? Your joy in Jesus Christ will overflow on account of me. Paul's not discouraged by the detours. Many of you know this this acronym for joy, Jesus, others, you, and I think we see that so clearly in Paul here. He's putting Jesus Christ and the gospel ahead of everything else. And then he puts others, the Philippians. He says, look, I'd rather go be with Jesus, but you guys need me here to progress in your joy in the faith. So I think that's what God's going to have me do. And he puts himself last. Like, the very least of his concerns is his own life. He's only concerned with what is going to get the gospel out. The last thing I want us to see here talking about the right of our life and being single-minded is that we need to observe the signs. We need to observe the signs. Um, I've, I've got some, some road signs uh, up here that, that are going to come across the screen. Sometimes you see signs that are not very helpful, like this one. Touching wires causes instant death, $200 fine. 
Well, it's hard to pay a fine when you're dead. Um, the next sign, it shows us, um, when I was a, a teenager, I thought this meant that I was try, supposed to try to peel out, you know, like leave, leave rubber there on the asphalt, but apparently it means slippery road. Um, this sign is, is for a school zone, but if you ask me, I think it, it's warning us that there's a man carrying a purse, is what it looks like. Um, punctuation is key. Slow children playing. So is it slow children playing or like slow children playing? Um, I don't think it's very nice to call those children slow. And this one is, is actually very helpful. If you've driven through Huntsville, you've seen a sign very similar to this. State prison next to do not pick up hitchhikers. Like that's a good thing. There's other places it's like uh, hitchhikers may be escaping from prison. And it's like, okay, so I know not to pick up hitchhikers. These signs are helpful. They tell us things. They tell us what we need to know. And in these last few verses, Paul gives us some signs. In verse 27, he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, when he says conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, he's literally saying live as citizens of heaven. Like live as citizens of Jesus Christ. And to the Philippians, this would make great sense because... What you need to know about Philippi is that it was a city that had been conquered by the Romans, and then the Caesar Octavian um, ordered that Roman citizens, like he would just look at families and say, you're moving to Philippi. And so they would have to transplant there to occupy this city. But because of that, all the citizens of Philippi, they gave the italic right. Now what is the italic right? It doesn't mean that you lean to the right. The italic right means that that even though this land is not in Italy, even though this land is not Rome, it's considered Roman land, right? Much like if you go overseas and you go to the uh, U.S. consulate or the ambassador, uh, the embassy, like that is U.S. soil. It's considered U.S. soil. Uh, So these people living there would understand that, okay, we don't live in Rome, but we're citizens of Rome. We don't live in heaven, but we're citizens of heaven. And so he's saying, conduct yourselves as people who are citizens of heaven. He goes on. Verse, verse 28, he says, uh, end of 27, I know that, I will, that you will stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. So Paul says, reminds him, you're not alone. Like, I went through this struggle, you're going through this struggle. You're on the winning side. He says, look, these people that are giving you a hard time, remember our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers of this world and the darkness of this world, which has already lost because it's been defeated by Jesus Christ. And the last thing he says is that, remember, it's a privilege to suffer. Like, privilege to suffer? How can you even say that? I thought this was about joy, not suffering. I don't want to suffer. That doesn't sound like joy. That brings us back to being single-minded. Like, when you're suffering something, when you're going through something, If you really want to experience that joy, you need to be asking yourself, what is it that God wants me to learn through this? How is it that God wants to be glorified through this? When you begin to live your life that way, man, it'll be the ride of your life like you've never experienced. You'll be able to go through things, and there are going to be tears that are shed. There are going to be frustrations. 
but there's going to be a peace that surrounds your life that comes from being single-minded, remembering that you're not citizens of this earth, that you're a citizen of heaven, that Jesus Christ died for you, and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. When's the last time you felt joy? What is it in your life that brings you joy? What is your single-minded focus? Is it the gospel or is it something else? As we go through this book, I, I just want us to be really focused on Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we could be single-minded and experience his joy. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today and your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can have joy through relationship with you, and we pray that not only would we experience it, but we would lead others to experience that joy as well. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.